That's the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking on that passage now. And I want to start with a question for us all. What do you want? What do you really want today? What's your deepest desire, your most persistent longing? Might be a good idea not to answer out loud. Do you want to feel safe? Is that, is that the deepest thing? Do you want to get rich? Yes, thank you. Do you want to escape? Do you want to feel happy? Now in our reading today, we basically hear Jesus asking that question, what do you want? He finds this severely disabled man who's been waiting there in this place by the pool, and we'll think about why he does that in a moment. And he's in a crowd, a whole crowd of broken people. It's a It's a pitiful scene. And this man, it says here, has been disabled for 38 years. And that means in that culture that he's in poverty. And we also discover that this man is very isolated. He's, He's not got people around him. He hasn't got support. And Jesus says to this man, what do you want me to do for you? And in fact, in verse 6, he even suggests the answer. He says, do you want to get well? And you might say, is the Pope Catholic? But Jesus is making a point with the question. Do you want to get well? And then he heals him on the spot. Just like that. No sooner is it asked than it is done. And it's showing us something very important about Jesus. Now, what does it show? Uh, uh, There's a surface level uh, obvious point here. Jesus Christ has the power to redeem situations that are absolutely hopeless. That nobody else can change. He can do it. He has the power to turn around, transform lives. He grants this man's deepest desire. But is that it? As I said, that's quite obvious. Is that all it's teaching us? What about you and me? Can we draw a straight line from this story to our own lives? Can we expect that Jesus, if he shows up in our lives will just come and heal us and grant our deepest desire. And if that is the takeaway from the story, then we need just simply to know how to get that power, how to access it. And some people have suggested that that is what it means, and that if you just prayed with enough faith, then Jesus would heal you or rescue you from your situation or do whatever it is that you need. That Jesus, if you just had enough faith and prayed, then Jesus will show up your life in your life now and do such things. But if we were to think that it would be a serious mistake. That's not the point of the story. Because it's not that simple. We need to go a bit deeper. Jesus is not here in the flesh as he was in the first century for a number of years. And the thing is, these stories were not written down as advertisements. You know how adverts work. In an advert, a company shows what their product can do for you. And they make it as attractive as possible. They display their car, or their vacuum cleaner, or their pair of jeans, and they basically say, if you pay your money and take your choice and buy this, you will get the benefits associated with this car, or this vacuum cleaner, or this pair of jeans. So with the advert, I can draw a straight line from the advert to myself. If I get that car, I will obtain its benefits, right? I just need the car. If I buy that pair of jeans, I will look that good. Really. And I'm a fool to believe it anyway. Now, these stories of Jesus aren't adverts. 
The author of this book, John, calls them signs, like a signpost. And signs are giving information, true information, about where you need to go. Signs show a direction of travel. You need to move towards where the sign is pointing. Signs show us where we need to go. And there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. The first one is when Jesus changes water into wine at a wedding to save the day. And it's a sign that Jesus is the Lord of the wine. Jesus is the creator God come to earth, bringing joy and gladness. That's the nature of his rule. Jesus' rule is one of joy and gladness. That's the first sign. That's what it's pointing to. The second sign we thought about last week is the healing, dramatic healing of a boy who's the son of a royal official, civil servant. And this healing was done at a distance. The boy had a terrible fever. He was actually on death's door. He was close to death. And in his desperation, the father left the son, traveled more than 20 miles on foot, came saw Jesus, begged Jesus, please come to my house to, to heal my son. But Jesus didn't go along with it. He said, unless you people see miraculous signs, you will never believe. He called the man to a deeper trust. He said, you go, your son will be healed. And the man had to believe him, take him at his word and go, even though he had nothing that he could see or experience that would guarantee that that would happen, just the word of Jesus Christ. See, He had to have faith that Jesus wasn't just a supernatural GP, but that he was someone far, far greater. And that sign was showing us that seeing isn't believing. Believing in Jesus is seeing. That sign called us to live by faith and not by sight. So now we're on to the third sign. We're at the pool, not the swimming pool, but the pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate In Jerusalem, it says in verse 2. And here Jesus does another miracle. But again, it's not just a miracle. It's a sign. It's The author wants us to do our own counting by now. We know this is the third one. It's giving us some information about Jesus that we need to know and pointing us in a direction of travel. We need to go there and follow that. It's showing us, pointing us to something important. But what is it? How has this sign of this man helped me to believe in Jesus more deeply than I do now? How does this sign give us life in the name of Jesus, which is what the book is all about? Jesus, you read this book, you accept it, you trust in Christ, it says you will have life. That's why we're meeting here. This isn't just because we can't think of anything better to do on Sunday morning. It's because when we gather together and hear God's word and God's spirit is present among us, we actually get life right now. That's how important it is to gather together. How does this sign do that? I want to share three Ps, which every Baptist preacher always has, three Ps. The power of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the perspective of Jesus. These are the three things we're going to see here. These are what we're being pointed towards. Jesus' power, his person his identity, and his perspective, how he thinks. Firstly, Jesus' power. Have, have, open your Bible again if you've closed it, page 1068. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, I'll read it. John 5, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, and there's in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic language is called Bethesda, 
which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. That means it's a really big space. So it's a very big area. There's five covered areas around this pool. And here it says, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. So this is a scene of human need, if ever there was one. Remember, there is no socialized health care in Jerusalem in the first century. If you're blind or lame or paralyzed, you don't have state benefits. These are people in great need. They have their disability and they have all sorts of other unfortunate things that come along with it. And here is this one man and he's been disabled for 38 years. We don't know how long he's been waiting at the pool, but it seems quite a long time. Can you just imagine what that would have done to the poor guy? The impact of it on his heart, his emotions, his, his mental health, his attitude to life. The way that he comes out in the text, he seems like he's lost all hope. Why is he there at this pool? Now, there was a local legend that when the waters moved, that an angel had somehow shown up and was moving the waters and would heal someone. And that's why it's a bit weird if you notice the text actually jumps from verse 3 to verse 5. These verses are all added later, by the way. But if you look, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, jump straight into verse 5. If you've got the church Bible, the explanation is given in the footnote. Verse 4, which is not considered part of the original text, was added. And verse 4 said this, From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, that's not original. Some scribes added that in later on to the text. A little bit like a study Bible. They're putting in a note there to try and help people understand why so many people are around the pool. But it's not part of the original text. But you can just imagine the scene, can't you? There's some kind of disturbance in the water. And... All these poor people are trying to get in there because first one in has dibs on the healing. It's like a youth, troop, youth group trip to the swimming baths. We used to take the young people from this church to a uh, swimming pool and all the boys would immediately jump, you know, trying to dive bomb into the pool, trying to get in. And so there's this man and he's waiting there with this, this kind of pathetic hope, really. And... Even there he's hopeless because in verse 7 he says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets him down ahead of me. This poor guy, he's just so isolated. He's on his own. And another time Jesus was, was in a place and some men brought a, a paralyzed man with them to, to help, ask for Jesus' help. And these four guys dug through a roof and lowered the man down into the room. See, he had friends. This guy hasn't got any friends. He's got no friends. And he, he's there and he's clinging to this vain hope. And then one day this stranger walks up to him and looks him in the eye and says, Do you want to get well? And he replies the only way he knows how. Well, I've got no one to help me. Uh, whenever I try to go in, someone gets in ahead of me. It's, com it's a complaint. And maybe he's reaching out a bit, hoping that Jesus will help him get in the water. 
You see, this man is thinking only in terms of the world that he knows. He's, it's a world in which people rely on the resources in this world to solve their problems. All he's thinking about is getting into that water. It's a closed system. But Jesus is the one who has come from heaven. He's the word of God in human flesh. He's having none of it. He bypasses the pool. There's no need to wait. He simply speaks. Get up. Pick up your mat. And walk. See, Jesus doesn't really need to rely on the forces of creation for healing. He is the creator. He can repair, restore, renew this broken world with his, at a word. And he can do so with... Uh, the word that formed human bodies right in the beginning, the creator who formed us, gave us our flesh, that same word that formed humankind in the beginning now speaks to this man and causes his body to be knit together and strengthened and fully functioning. And in an instant, the man rises to his feet. And all those long years are just wiped away and forgotten. In an instant, it's like cobwebs swept away from a, a grubby window and the sunlight breaks in and he springs to his feet and he rolls up his mattress and he walks out of the sheep gate never to return power of Jesus why did Jesus tell him to take his mattress because he's not going back he's done with that place it's to show everyone that this is a full and total healing, a miracle. And I think, because Jesus wants to throw down the gauntlet, it's the Sabbath, that means it's Saturday. It's a sacred day, and Jesus knows that the authorities are going to see this man carrying his mat around, and they're going to start asking questions. It will put the fox among the chickens, which is what Jesus wants to do. And as I said earlier, this is not just a miracle, it's a sign. So what is its sign showing us? Firstly, the extraordinary power of Jesus Christ. Power beyond that of anyone else. Power exercised on behalf of the weak and the marginalized and the broken and the poor. Power that is exercised graciously. The 16th century French reformer John Calvin wrote this. This sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas. And he does not dare to promise himself more than he conceives in his own mind. But Jesus stretches forth his hand from hidden places and shows how far his goodness exceeds the narrowness of our faith. God may keep us in suspense, but though there seems no end to our troubles... We ought always to believe that God is a wonderful deliverer who easily shatters every obstacle by his power. And this power here is pointing to something really big, something bigger than we may have thought when we first read this. Yes, it's pointing out that Jesus is God in, in flesh, but there's something more specific and it's in the language. Later on in the chapter, Jesus spells out the future. Uh, verses 24 to 29, he says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus is talking about the future there. The dead will hear his voice. They will rise to live or rise to be condemned. It's the end of time. The last day. Judgment Day. A new creation is coming, Jesus says, in which his voice will speak and all of those who trust in him will rise to everlasting life in their body, recognizably you. And when he says rise, it's exactly the same verb, the same word that's used back in verse 8. Jesus said to the man, get up. Rise. So what this is doing is the episode by the pool is a signpost to a bigger reality. The renewal of this man's body is just a picture of what is going to happen at the end of time for all of us. A day will come when a voice will speak, Behold, I am making all things new, and the old order of things will pass away, and all the sorrow and suffering, the tears, the bitterness, the sickness and sin of this old world order will all pass away and heaven will come to earth and there will be a new creation. We call it the world to come. That's what's in view here. And the question then is not do you want to get well, but do you want to be part of that world when it comes? Do you? The miracle is a signpost saying he has that kind of power, power to make people rise. How come? Because of who he is, because of his person. Secondly, the person, the sign reveals not just his power, but the person. And by person, I mean his identity, who Jesus is. See, the moral police are out and about on Sabbath with their clipboard, looking around, you know. Can you see anybody breaking the Sabbath? I think there might be one over there. Oh, yep, okay. They're out and about, and they see this man. Oh, hold on, we've got somebody carrying a mattress. It's a clear violation of 3.2 of paragraph 10. You know, if only they'd had speed cameras. Somebody speeding on the Sabbath. So they put in a call to the religious headquarters. Gov, we've got a former cripple here carrying a mattress on the Sabbath. What do you want us to do? over book him and bring him in and they get this guy uh, and the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed well listen here it's the Sabbath the law forbids you to carry your mat whoa they quickly point out he's breaking the rules now it's not actually 100% clear what rule he's breaking the Old Testament law we thought about this last year in the Ten Commandments insisted as a good thing that the Israelites kept a Sabbath as a special day, a sacred day of rest. 
They were not permitted to work on it. And that generally means take a break from your normal occupation. So if you're a gardener, you can't mow the lawn on the Sabbath. But if you're a teacher, you might mow the lawn because that for you could be rest. You see? It's taking a break from what's your normal activity. It's a joyful day, a day off from all your work and worry, a day where you trust that God's got my back and he'll provide enough for me to take a day of rest, a day of worship with family and community. But later experts felt that more clarity was needed about what was meant by work, so they drew up lots and lots of extra guidelines and eventually they came up with 39 different classes of work and guess what? People became sticklers for tradition. We're very prone to it. Churches are full of traditions that actually don't really come from the Bible. People become sticklers for traditions, for rules. And these things are often more prescriptive than the Bible itself. So the man carrying his mattress is breaking a guideline that says this. Work is carrying something from one place to another. Going to catch him out, aren't they? And look at this guy. He reveals his true colors. I mean, this is incredible. Jesus just healed him. Look what he does. Verse 11. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He immediately tries to blame Jesus. What a guy. He immediately tries to throw Jesus under the bus. But the problem is, he hasn't even found out Jesus' name. So he just goes, "Uh, it was the the man who who, uh, made me well. It was his fault. Unbelievable. So it all sounds a bit like a lame excuse, doesn't it? It's a bit like the dog ate my homework. Don't know if anybody ever used that. I had a friend who did. The dog ate my homework. The man who made me well. Oh, really? And the leaders are trying to test him, so they say, okay, then, verse 12, who is this fellow? Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? But they've actually asked the key question that we all need to ask. Every one of us in this room today needs to ask this question. It's probably the most important question of your life. Who is this fellow? Who is Jesus? Because how you answer that question will change your future. And Jesus himself gives the answer. El read it for us earlier on. Verse 16 to 18. Jesus, uh, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, he said this. And this is who he is. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So he's saying, my father works on the Sabbath, so I'm doing what he does. I too am working. And for this reason, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They did the maths and they got it right. By that statement, Jesus is making himself equal with God. He's saying, I'm the one and only, the unique son of God, the one who was there in the beginning, who was with God, before all things were made, and the one who was God. 
Jesus is therefore the one with the unique relationship to God, the Father, because he is God, the eternal son. He's always been there. There never was a time when he was not. So what the Father does, Jesus does. Jesus is clearly claiming equality with God. He is unapologetic about healing on the Sabbath. Can you see that? Now, these leaders saw it straight away. They saw that Jesus was stepping into a well-known debate within Judaism. They knew that the Sabbath was a holy day and it was fenced around with protective guidelines. But the theological question arose, what about God? You know, if the Sabbath's a holy day, does God keep the Sabbath? Does God rest every week for a 24-hour period? And the reflection revealed that God doesn't keep the Sabbath like that. He doesn't rest from his customary activity on Saturday. God keeps sustaining the world and the universe. He keeps maintaining what we think of as the law of gravity. God keeps the sun to rise and the rain to fall. God keeps sustaining all things. They don't just happen by themselves. It's not a a clock that's been set up and wound up and left. God is actively sustaining all things. God, God is still doing that every day of the week. So they concluded that it must be right for God to break the Sabbath. After all, he's the creator. He's a being who's so much higher than any of us. The same rules don't really apply to him. Now, Jesus, this man, this 30, early 30s man, says, I'm on the same page as the Father. You see what he's saying? I do what God does. And the leaders see it straight away. And this actually leads them to try and have him killed. They actually see something about Jesus a lot more clearly than many people do today. And it's this. Jesus is either crazy or wicked or he is what he says he is. He's either mad or he's bad or he's the son of God. Anybody who claims equality with God is subject to that, aren't they? They're either mentally ill or they're a liar or, well, could they be telling the truth? Now, many of you will know this Already, but this argument was put forward very famously and very well by a professor called C.S. Lewis in a radio talk many years ago. And this is a BBC radio talk, and this is a famous quote. Let me read it for you in its entirety. He said, This I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now, that is the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, like the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He did not leave that option open to us. He did not mean to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he wasn't a lunatic or a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. 
So we must ask ourselves today, who is Jesus? All of us. This is why you actually came here today, because you need to answer this question. Have you made up your mind yet? There is no bigger question today. You have to come to terms with it. Who is this fellow? We lived for 12 years in the great city of Manchester. We lived in the south part of the city in a really amazing neighborhood. I never lived anywhere with community like it. And my neighbors, many of my neighbors were true believers. They were devoted. They were, they were committed. Some of them were actually members of the Labour Party. They didn't hide this fact. They weren't embarrassed about it. They invited others to join them. In fact, when the election came, they invited our whole street to go leafleting and put leaflets through the, the doors and come and have tea and cake at their house afterwards. They believed. And so they invited. But what about me? Well, I don't know. I thought, you know, politically, I'm not sure. When it comes to politics, I just don't know. I look at the options, I see things that I like and things that I don't like in every party. So I'm an, I'm an agnostic. Agnostic means I don't know. I'm unsure. And to be honest, being an agnostic was a comfortable place to be because it protected me from having to make a decision. It made it sound like I was thinking about politics, but it actually shielded me from thinking too hard about it. Because if I'm honest, my political agnosticism was just lazy because it also protected me from being too committed. I didn't have to jump in because I was agnostic. I was always sitting on the fence. I sat on the fence so long my bum started to hurt. But then election day came and I had to vote. Because whoever gets into power will shape this nation. And I'm responsible for my vote, aren't I? People died to get the vote. And our seat was a really important seat because it was a swing seat. It was either going to be Liberal Democrat or Labour. It was historically Labour, Labour all the way through. And the Lib Dems had got in, but there was a chance that Labour would get back. So actually, my vote really did, it quite obviously counted for something. There's no other contenders here. So being an agnostic wasn't good enough, was it? On election day, you've got to make your mind up. Who would be best in authority? You are responsible to cast a vote. You can't sit on the fence forever when it comes time to vote. And you can't sit on the fence forever with Jesus Christ. He's too important. Who do you want to be in charge? Yourself or the Lord of all things? There's no bigger question for us today. You have to come to terms with it. Who is this fellow? And what are you doing with the answer? Now, according to this gospel, he is the son of God, the one who came from heaven full of grace and truth. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who invites you now to come to him and have life in his name. There is an offer open today that won't be op open forever. Can you see there's some urgency about our response? It's all the more urgent. Not just because of who Jesus is, but because of his perspective. Finally, Jesus' perspective is that he will be the judge. Not just the king, 
not just the healer, not just the ruler, but also the judge. Uh, because there's a really quite a, a surprising twist in this story. Jesus comes back in verse 14 and finds the guy again. You think it's all over. It's a bit like the 1969 World Cup. You know, they think it's all over. It is now. They think it's all over. Uh, and Jesus then appears again. And he deliberately goes and finds the man. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, the conversation ain't over. And he goes to the temple and he finds the man there. And he's loving it. He's a disabled man. He'd been excluded from this community worship for all those years. And now he's there. He's loving the experience of health. He's loving the discovery. He's probably skipping around on his newfound legs. And then this stranger walks into his life again and looks him in the eye. What's he going to say this time? And again, he says something unexpected. See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And that's how he leaves it. Do you want to get well? See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this is quite shocking. Why didn't Jesus just leave it be? You know, he could have been the hero secretly knowing that he'd turned the, life's man around, the man's life around. Why come back for afters and make this comment? Evidently, to Jesus Christ, there is something much more important than healing. There's something much more important than healing. There's something that's even more important than rescuing somebody from 38 long years of disability and isolation. This is probably hard for us to grasp, but we need to, because we tend to think that this life is all there is. So the most important things are physical health and having enough money and going on a holiday and leisure time. That's what you live like if this life is all you have. And we are badly mistaken when we think like that. Because there's a much bigger horizon. And we find it in the perspective of Jesus. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. See, there's something much worse than crippling disability, poverty, isolation in this life. And the thing that is worse is dying in your own sins. Dying in your sins means, means you meet the judge of all mankind without a plea. You meet the judge and you're judged on your own track record. And he knows everything. You're judged on your own merits and there aren't many of them. And they will not stand. That's why Jesus comes back and makes this move. He cares enough for the man to go after him about the really important thing and to warn him. And if I can paraphrase, Jesus says something like this. Listen, I know you're happy about being healed. Great. But listen, there's something much more important that you need to understand. It's that you get right with God. That you stop your old way of life that is sinful or something much worse may happen to you, you will meet God and be judged. See, the Bible's perspective is a lot bigger than ours. It starts before history. It ends after the end of human time. It gives us God's eye view of the world. And in that view, although we tend to think we're pretty good, we are enemies of God because we live in his world and we put ourselves in the center. I heard a story about a man who owned a dog. He had a pet dog, and he had an orchid. I know we have a lot of dog owners and dog lovers in this church and in this town. And uh, I know you all care for your dogs very, very well. But this man 
was cruel to the dog. He treated it abominably. He hardly fed it. It was often dehydrated, lack of water. He never took it for a walk. If he did, he would drag it around unceremoniously. The dog was often ill, covered in sores. He used to kick it whenever he was frustrated. It was horrible to the dog. It's ghastly. You think, what a dreadful man, maltreating a poor dog. But this man also had an orchid. You know what orchids look like? You know they have those things that come out of the soil at the bottom? They're actually supposed to do that. My mum didn't know and was pushing them all back in for quite a few years. But you get an orchid, and an orchid can look really beautiful. And this man, he, he cared for that orchid like it was his child. He just kept it beautiful. He used to dust the leaves with milk. Keep it beautiful and beautiful. And you'd say, okay, what kind of a person was he? He kept such good care of the orchid. Yeah, but look what he did to the dog. You see, how you treat a higher being is more important. How you treat a dog is more important than how you treat a flower. So if that's a dog, how are you treating the living God? The one who gave you everything. The one who's cared for you since the moment you were conceived. Is he the center of your life? Is he the one you love and adore? Are you loyal to him? Are you trying to stop from behaviors and attitudes that are opposed to him? Because all sin is ultimately against God. Have you turned from those things and followed Jesus Christ? Who are you trusting today for life? Are you like this man in the story, wanting benefits and then wanting to go on your merry way? And in the very next verse, he tries to throw Jesus under the bus again. There was a man in this church many years ago called Matt Tyndall. He'd fought in World War I. He was well known as a Christian. And there were a company of men in a trench who thought this was hilarious and they would mock the Christian faith and mock Matt. And then one night, word came that they were going to be shelled. And they were terrified. And they sent word to him, please pray for us. And he did. And that night, by God's grace, they were all spared. And later on, he spoke to them, and they were relieved and happy and rejoicing. And every one of them carried on mocking God just as they'd done before. See, it's possible for you to cry out to God when you're in trouble, when life goes wrong, and, but carry on living just as you did before. I had a colleague when I was in business who spoke to me one time. I didn't know him, actually, that well. I knew, I knew his name. He said to me, my wife is on her fourth pregnancy, She's had three miscarriages. I'm not a religious man. We were at hospital because it looks like she's going to lose the fourth one. And he said, I started praying, please save this baby. And then I realized, I don't give God the time of day. Why should he help me now? I thought, this guy has got some spiritual insight. See, the lesson of this story is that Jesus is powerful. He may help you when you cry out to him. He is that gracious, but such a rescue would only be temporary. There's something more important right around the corner. We're all going to die and face the judge. It's time to put your cross in the box. You have to make your mind up. Have you seen the sign this morning? Have you seen, have you witnessed the power and person of Jesus Christ? Then... It's time to stop sinning. Trust him. 
Lean on him. Do you want to get well? Turn to Jesus today. Let me just close for a moment by speaking to those here who are following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if we really lived like the new creation was breaking in, that the world to come was round the corner, how would we live? How would it shape our lives, our priorities? If we really believe that Jesus is right, that something worse can happen to a person if they don't stop sinning, then how would it change us, the way we relate to people? Would we be willing to cross the room and ask them to read the Bible with us? Spent a bit of time recently with a pastor called Bill Bush at a church called Rock Point in Phoenix, Arizona, and he said this amazing quote, I can tell what really matters to you without asking you a single question. I can tell what really matters to you by looking at your calendar and your checkbook. You don't have to ask someone. Just see what they're giving their time to and what they give money to. Has the reality of Jesus and his mission made its way to your bank account? Do you give? Give enough to feel it? If you're retired here or you're going to retire soon, how are you spending your precious time and resources in light of the coming return of Jesus? Those of us here who are raising children, what are the priorities for those children? Are we living for the one who will be the judge of all things? What are children picking up from you subconsciously about what's important? Education and career, success, money, leisure. There's a challenge here, isn't there? But there's also great comfort. How does knowing this Jesus change the way that we struggle now? How does knowing this Jesus change the way we relate to death? I've seen it this year, this last year. I've been inspired by a woman who lost her husband. Uh, suddenly, he was a fit and healthy man, and it, was, it just snatched away in, in a short time. And yes, there was grief and sorrow, but I have, I've seen how her experience has been totally shaped by faith in this Jesus. A passion in her for her friends to hear about the hope that she has and that her husband had. I've seen her giving comfort to others without hope who didn't know Jesus. She's the one giving comfort to them. Because this is how this works out in real life. He's the one with the power. He's the person. He's the one who will make all things right. Therefore, this life is just temporary. It's just, we're just starting. It's the beginning. And in face of the greatest enemy that any of us will face, this widow was undaunted. So let me close with that. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, 
all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's do that today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you come to us and say, do you want to get well? And we don't realize the depth of what you're saying. We're so bound by circumstances and our latest problem. And yet when you offer getting well and say, rise up, you are talking about the future that is greater than any of us can imagine. Please, Lord, seal it on our hearts today. Make us people of the King. And if there's one person here today who knows it's time for them to trust you and put their cross in the box and stop sitting on the fence, give them the power to do that now, we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, we're going to sing one song to finish. Uh, guys, we're going to do Crown and Many Crowns. Um, normally, it's a song that we